0: Hello, and welcome to Running the Table, an ongoing podcast about running and playing tabletop role-playing games. I'd like to thank all of you who have asked questions, and if you'd like to ask some of your own, please email them to rttpodcast at gmail.com. Or, you can ask them directly to Running the Table on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Keith. And today I have with me Kyle Andrews, the Dungeon Master for the podcast We Have Dark Vision. Hello, Kyle. Thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, man. How are you doing?
0: I am doing well. Uh, this is being recorded during uh, quarantine, so that's yeah. that's a thing. <laughs> but
1: It's been interesting. I've actually been at my parents' house painting their house for them because they didn't want to do it themselves. They're like, hey, you're not working, so come do this oh so my quarantine has been filled with uh the most boring of work
0: <laughs> well at least it's something I-, I know a lot of people struggle with keeping themselves occupied during times like these and maybe even turn to podcasts hello
1: yeah yeah i'm <laughs> really hoping that that really picks up our listenership as well
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh and we have dark vision.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm a fairly new to DMing. I've been playing D&D for, uh, well, like a decade or so. And well, no, that's not quite true. I tried D&D for the first time in like grade five and I didn't really get it. Uh, it was very hard for me and my like 10 year old friends <laughs> to figure out this game. And I kind of just put it aside. And then about 10 years ago, I started playing again. And I was like, oh, man, this is a lot of fun. Um, and then our campaign ended and I wanted to play more and I started DMing because I think that's the way most people start DMing is they want to play and nobody else wants to. So they're like, I guess I'll be the DM. And then all of your friends are like, yes, I'm in. Oh yeah. That, um,
0: is totally something that happens.
1: Yeah. I don't think, I think there are very few people that go into it being like, I want to be a DM and DM only. It's more I wanna play and I guess I have to do this so that I can play. Yeah. Um, but our podcast is it's uh I'm a stand-up comedian, uh, and I run it with three of my friends who are also comedians or former comedians. I run it with my current sketch partner. Uh we have a sketch troupe called Tukes of Hazard. Um and he's in it and then a the guy that I used to do stand-up with back in university and my girlfriend who I met through doing stand-up because she also did stand-up for a while as well. So that's kind of what we do and it's a homebrew campaign and it's just they don't really know what they're doing and I try to help them not die, I guess. <laughs> uh, so it's a lot of fun. I, there's a lot of pausing during the recording to like look up rules and stuff, but, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy doing it. And we've had like 45 episodes
0: or so, so far.
1: And it's, uh, it doesn't, they're not making progress.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, your players don't always make progress, but it's important that they have fun while standing still, at least.
1: Exactly. They've opened a burger shop
0: in their home base.
1: (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. And one of the characters in the home base is one of my favorite characters I've ever gotten to play. So like, I'm happy with where it's going. I just didn't expect it to be 45 episodes and still not really, you know, have any sort of end in sight.
0: <laughs> well, at least it's got longevity for it. I that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds really fun. Uh so it is We Have Dark Vision the first podcast that you've ever done or even the first campaign you've ever done? How did you just kind of get started uh, as a DM and how would you get started with the podcast itself? So this is the uh, first D&D podcast that I've run. I
1: used to run a another uh, fan fiction podcast where we would read or do dramatic readings of like terrible or insane or funny uh, fan fiction that people would submit to us to read um hmm which was it it was fun it got a little weird sometimes and uh i'm i'm not glad it's over but we read a lot of stuff that i was like i don't need to read any more of this anymore (laughs) um but i ran one short campaign before starting the podcast uh this this D &D podcast and then once that sort of fizzled out slash wrapped up I decided to give this one a shot because, hey, if we're putting out episodes, it's more likely that people will show up every week to play. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it it does definitely get people uh, in seats for the game.
1: Yeah, when when there's a reason and you have like a deadline to get episodes out, people are more willing to organize their schedule, which is nice. So it was it was
0: all a ploy on my part to play D and D more regularly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that makes sense. It it usually is whether you're DMing or running a podcast. It's all a ploy just so we can play.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, What's the biggest obstacle or challenge that you've run into while running uh, these couple games or while while running We Have Dark Vision?
1: I think my biggest ongoing challenge is maintaining the pacing of the game. Uh, I don't know if my players ever really pick up on how concerned I am with pacing and like what what I do to maintain that pace so it doesn't ever feel dead or uh, boring or anything. But what kind of goes hand in hand with that is uh, I don't never really know how much or how little information to give out at any one time because um, like I want them to know things, I want my players to understand what's going on, but I don't want to like you know just. Exposition things at them because uh, too much exposition makes something that could be great into something that's like okay, but ultimately unsatisfying. Kind of like, kind of like Rogue One. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like yeah, this is a good movie, but man, you explained a lot of this at me instead of just showed it to me and then I could figure it out myself. So, uh, that- yeah, the pacing and the distribution of information is what I struggle with the most.
0: Yeah, that that is definitely a challenge that a lot of Dungeon Masters come into, and I have told uh, some of my friends and some people that have asked me questions that at a certain point, it is the curse of the Dungeon Master to always know more about the world and the story than the players ever will. Oh, I know. I need a friend
1: who listens to the podcast but doesn't really care about what happens so I can talk to them about all the other things so I can like get it out of my brain
0: (laughs) I know and it it, this is one of the reasons that I strongly recommend that most dungeon masters join a dungeon master community of some kind because almost every DM would love to hear all of those little itty bitty gritty details and know what's going on about the story and know what, what happened with the characters and how
1: yeah, I, I do a lot of venting on some subreddits to, like, <laughs> get out all of my things. And sometimes they get traction and sometimes one person cares and you're like, well, that's enough for me.
0: That's all you really need. Uh, and then if you really, really want to, what you could do, and this is something that I've done myself, is write just, like, supplemental uh, information write-ups just to hand out I- i've flavored them as uh leaflets or periodicals or even like weekly newspapers in games before nice
1: yeah i did i did something like that right at the very beginning with sort of some of the background lore that their characters like not all of the lore that i have but just the little bits that their characters would definitely know and is definitely related to what's happening so that they could sort of read it in their own pace and i don't have to just explain and explain and explain at them while they're sitting there fiddling with their pens and rolling dice and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I haven't done any of it in-game and that that's something I should really consider doing.
0: Yeah, so, so that's the biggest challenge you've run into, but what is your favorite experience that you've ever had in all of your time running any tabletop role-playing game, including D&D, but beyond that as well?
1: Uh, well, I think, I think my, my favorite thing that has ever happened in D&D is when I was a player. Uh, and is that okay for me to talk about being a player for a little bit? Because it kind of, it'll tie into being a DM at the end, I promise.
0: Uh, one, Uh, one thing that, uh, I will say on that, it's always okay to talk about being a player because we as DMs also learn a lot from when we are players
1: exactly and that's kind of where this is this story is going it'll all all wind up to something i've learned and hope to implement in my games at some point um so we were playing star wars saga uh did have you ever played the star wars saga games i have
0: not but i know about them pretty well
1: man it's a lot of fun if like if you're into star wars i would highly recommend playing saga it's it's so awesome to be a jedi (laughs) but uh (laughs) I was playing a Wookiee Jedi, and there was four of us, and we were all Jedis. And we played from level like two to level 15 or 16, I think is like the last character sheet I have. But also, we died in the last one, so we might have been a higher level, and he might have just torn up those last sheets. I can't really remember. But uh, it was a high level game, higher than like most other games I'd gotten to. Uh, and it was over a year of play time, and we played a couple of times a week. Like, we were super into this game. We went through a lot. Um, in one of the early sessions, I force bonded with this homeless orphan child who tried to steal my lightsaber. But then I took him under my wing, and then he got captured by the bad guys as we were trying to escape the planet that was secretly being overrun by the Sith. So I had to, like, choose between saving the kid or warning the rest of the galaxy that the Sith were back. And I chose yep. to leave the kid behind. And I regret that decision every single day of my life. Um, And then one of the other characters had one of their characters die, and then they made a new character. So they decided to make their new character be the older sister of the boy I abandoned. Um, So it was this whole big, we were all tied together, and we really cared about what was happening in this game, and everything was so important to us. And we were attached to our characters and to each other's characters. And all this leads up to... In the final arc, uh, one of the other players in our group betrays us and he reveals that he was raised by the Sith, trained as a Sith, and then came and tagged along with us. And like we knew that there was something in his past that he was hiding from us, but he was so good at deflecting that we never really got to ask him questions about it. And it blew my mind and is like one of the best things that have ever happened in all of my experience. Being betrayed was amazing (laughs) and i think what i've learned or tried to take out of that is like you can you can do those types of things i know there's lots of warnings like oh don't don't like work with one player against the group and don't do that but like if you plant the seeds properly it can be the most amazing storytelling experience your group will ever ever deal with or ever encounter like it can be so much fun to just look back and be like oh man we missed all of these hints we should have seen this coming and and didn't and that's what i try to like bring into my game as much as possible is those early seeds of there's something else happening here you guys should have asked questions about it but you didn't and now you're gonna get screwed
0: yeah and uh i have found that that's Very useful in uh, telling a story, whether you're using a player to help you tell that or you're telling it through the NPCs in the world. Just having those kinds of hints of there's more going on, whether or not you look at them is up to you.
1: Yeah, and and having those hints helps flesh out the entire world because you've created things that the players are... Whether they're aware of or subconsciously aware of or just they know that there's something else happening that they aren't dealing with in front of them, which fleshes out the world in a more realistic way. And you really didn't even have to do anything to do that. You just planted a seed in your players' minds and then they've expanded upon it in their own mind.
0: Yeah. All right. So we also have... Outside of my own questions for you, uh, we have questions that are written in by listeners. And the very first one that we'll discuss for this episode uh, is about making a character, actually. Uh, So this is a pretty good segue, I think, going from a player story and a DM into how do you select a class, a race, a history, a motivation and a story for a character that you're building and is it any different when you're designing an npc
1: uh i i will start by very quickly saying
0: yes it is quite different when i try to design
1: an npc based on building a character but i'll go back and talk about the characters first and then we'll talk about why it's different um when i come up with a character to play i normally have an idea for one aspect of that character uh I generally don't decide on everything all at once. So maybe it's something as simple as like, well, I want to play a warlock this time. Um, sometimes it's just a snippet of a backstory or an attitude that I want the character to have. But most of the time I come up with an idea for a name and then I build the character from that, uh, which I think might not be the most common way to do it, but uh, it's what works for me. And it's what sort of gets me in the mind frame to, create a character that can end up being fully uh realized and someone that I already feel connected to as I build it. Um so like for example, I came up with the name Big Panda once. I wanted my character to be called Big Panda and because of that I was like, well, if he's Big Panda, he's probably small, so he's probably a halfling and it's a panda, so he's probably a ranger. So I made a halfling ranger. <laughs> uh, and then another character, I was like, eh, I think the word plunder bucket is funny. That's probably a gnome. So let's give him more names, because gnomes have lots of names. So he became Watford Plunderbucket River Blitz Cagholm. <laughs> um but everybody just called him Plunder Bucket. So that that's normally where I start. I have one little idea for something and I build on it based on what I think makes
0: sense. Um Yeah, I I uh I actually have a very similar process it may not be the name specifically um but i i take something i just call it a spark yeah. yeah and something that that gets me going about a character and i build off of what makes sense uh and i actually did make a character not too long ago uh based around a name so i got i just randomly generated names because i'm pretty terrible with names But I got one that really stuck with me. I randomly was generating names for characters and got Trouble. Well, that's fun. Nice. That is... That's a fantastic
1: name. I already want to play so many characters.
0: (laughs) What I ended up going with was they're called Trouble because she is a Firbolg warlock.
1: Fantastic.
0: Fearbulbs. I, yeah, Fearbolgs don't really have the concept of names, and so she yeah, that's so good. She introduced herself by what her parents called her, trouble. I love it. Um, yeah, I, I'm
1: not, I'm not a a power gamer or anything, so I don't really care about like making the optimal choices or like making sure that my stats line up properly. I'd rather just play uh, a character. Like, if they have negative stats, but I believe in the character, I'd rather play that rather than playing a character that's just the best that stats that it can possibly have. Which isn't to disparage anyone who enjoys power gaming and optimizing. Like, that's super fun. Also, it's just if I'm playing for a long campaign, I like building characters that uh, make sense based on the idea I have rather than trying to force a character into a specific stat block that would make the most sense for... Uh, or do the most damage or be the best at persuading and or whatever it is that your character's trying to do.
0: Yeah, I I have played both on the power bu- power player side and both on the and on the role play side and they're both very fun.
1: Yeah, I for short campaigns or one shots, I definitely do try and get the most bang for my buck out of my characters. Uh I'll I'll build build a tank if that's what we need for a short campaign or a short uh, one-shot. But otherwise, man, I, give me those flaws. Let me
0: play those flaws. I have so much fun playing flaws. It can really make a character so much more fun to play if they just are really bad at one thing.
1: Yeah. Back in that uh, that Star Wars saga campaign, my my Wookiee Jedi had zero to negative perception during over the course of it. And... <sighs> Just playing a Jedi tank boy that stumbles into altercations and is just like, well, I guess I'm dealing with this now, was a lot of fun once I got over the frustration of never being able to find things.
0: Yeah, I had a uh, very, very squishy character that I played for a couple one-shots in a Starfinder campaign. Uh, It is on a podcast that I'm on Experience in Gold, But they were not very good at, well, pretty much anything except for doing a lot of damage and hacking computers. Nice. Anything beyond that was totally outside their wheelhouse, and they just fell apart.
1: Just floundered through every other encounter?
0: Which made it very interesting, because they were a child.
1: See, that's awesome. That is such an interesting character idea to me instead of just like being good at everything or or whatever it ends up being but all of those things together is like yeah i cool i now have an idea of what that character is and i haven't even listened to you play it or seen you play it but i like i get it and i think that's a cool way to build characters yeah
0: so how is this different from building an npc we know it is different Uh, but how
1: building building a character for me is about what do I want and designing an NPC is very much more a what do I need um when you have an NPC there's generally a reason that you need to put it into your story so building it based on that need is the most important part of it rather than forcing in this character that like oh man this concept is fun but like well, why would he be in the city? It it just doesn't always make as much sense. Um, but I also think that it's very rare that my NPCs ever have a class. Um, like, even the important NPCs don't really have a class. Unless it's a wizard. Uh, because, like, if you need someone to do a thing that a wizard does, there's no disguising the fact that they're a wizard, so you might as well just call them a wizard. Um, but otherwise, almost NP- every... NPC in my game gets the stat block of a bandit or a cultist or a knight from the back of the monster manual and then I just give them the abilities that they need if they don't already exist in that stat block so like maybe they need to be stronger or smarter than what the rest of that stat block says they get a bit of a boost in that stat sometimes you just got to give that dwarf a spell and it doesn't it doesn't really matter what class or background they have it's just they need to be able to cast whatever whatever spell makes the most sense for that. Maybe maybe they need poison spray as a cantrip. It's just, what do you need to happen? And that's how you build your characters, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I actually strongly recommend, you mentioned using the bandits or the knights in the back. Uh, I strongly recommend that even for, you know, big bads, if they're NPCs, find a monster that makes sense as far as abilities and leveling and maybe just use their stat block yeah and then just call it
1: whatever else you want to call it or need it to be that's i'm very much a fan of the steal a stat block and reflavor it to make it fit the thing you want it to
0: fit oh yeah definitely that said it's not a bad i mad it's not a bad thing to want to go in and make the full stat block yourself that's just a different task entirely.
1: Oh, yeah. And I've definitely done it because sometimes that is the thing that's the only way to make a character that works in the way that you want it to do. And it's actually easier to build the whole stat block instead of stealing and modifying. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, steal as much as you possibly can. And then when you can't, there's rules in place to help you build it. And I think that's the best way to go about doing it. You'll make everything way easier on yourself
0: as a DM if you do that. I prefer to think of it as reuse
1: Yeah, I guess let's not have such a negative connotation to it. (laughs) Reuse, that's way better.
0: Uh, And one thing that I will also say uh, as far as the difference in designing an NPC from a character. And I've said this before on this podcast, but when designing an NPC, usually the the story around them is tied in with the story that you're telling. And the motivations that they have as an NPC are usually... A little bit simpler.
1: Yeah, if it I think the most useful NPC backstories or motivations are no more than a sentence. A sentence fragment is even better. If you can get across whatever you want with half of a sentence instead of a paragraph, perfect. You've designed an incredible NPC. Yeah. He wants to be king. Exactly. You don't need any more. The characters can fill out, or the players can fill out, help you fill out any more than that as they play through the game.
0: Yeah. That's all the motivation a villain might need, or even an ally. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we've talked at length about designing characters. So how about uh, what are some tips on making an engaging dungeon crawl or area exploration? Okay, so
1: I uh, I actually just ran uh, a, a big dungeon crawl in my podcast. I designed a dungeon from the ground up. And so I I'll, I'll, guess I'll go over sort of what I did to design it. And then a few of the mistakes that I realized I made as I was building it. And now I know what to do the next time. Um, so like the main floor of this dungeon was 52 rooms. Uh, The second floor had 10 rooms and then there was another room with, or another mini floor with five rooms in it, I think it was. So it was, it was a big, big
0: dungeon. That's sizable.
1: Yeah. Uh, And I would, first off, I would suggest don't make one that big your first time. (laughs) That is my first thing that I learned out of all of this. Make a couple smaller ones as a test first. But uh, no matter what size dungeon you're going to make, I think the very first thing you need to do is decide on a theme or a purpose for the dungeon. Like, why is it there? Why is it like this? You want it to feel like it's a whole cohesive place instead of just a bunch of rooms smashed together. Although I will say, sometimes you want it to be a bunch of rooms smashed together. But in general, uh, it should be a cohesive environment. Uh, If your players can learn something about the dungeon upon entering it and then continue to apply that thing they learned throughout, you are golden. You've started off with a great place for your dungeon. Um, And then once you sort of have that designing, uh, the layout of the dungeon becomes important and you need to decide if things within the dungeon can change. Uh, Like, how does time pass in the dungeon? How long does it take your players to get from room to room, from one end to the other, if they didn't run into obstacles? Uh, What happens as the time passes? Do monsters move around? Do they keep to their own sections? Do they migrate? Uh, Like, if you kill that carrion crawler in room 5, will the Sturges in room 6 take over that space when the players pass back that way? If you can have things happening around the dungeon based on what your characters have done uh, and they can see those things changing, all of a sudden your dungeon has now become a living space as opposed to uh, a static area that they need to smash their way through.
0: Yeah. And uh, in the same sense of uh, did the Sturges take over after the Carrion Crawler left or was killed I think that it is also fun to incorporate some level of, if you're using beasts or monsters like that, uh, they are not friends with everything else in the dungeon.
1: Oh, no, absolutely not. They should be fighting each other if it makes the most sense for that to happen.
0: And so I have in the past had a dungeon where there was a large number of gricks set in yeah. ambush. And it just so happened that one of the wandering monsters tripped that ambush before the players could get to it. So when the players get there, instead of a Grick ambush, they see a Grick feast.
1: That, I love it. That you just created a whole story in that dungeon and the players didn't even have to do anything. Like, that's so... What a good way to draw people into your game is have things happening outside of their influence as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, um,
1: And then I, I also, just in terms of layout of a dungeon, uh, having shortcuts <clears> and dead <throat> ends are your friends. Um, I don't think making a linear dungeon is the best way to go about doing things. Um, make it so that sometimes the choices the players make are wrong or right. Or maybe not wrong, but more difficult um for example like if you go through this dungeon and you're led to a t-junction and you can go left or you can go right and they chose to go left and then they have to fight through an encounter and evade some traps and then they follow this path around that they've been going through and they realize that it leads back to a few feet further down the dungeon if they had just gone right in the first place uh you've now created this maze of a dungeon that they The players would realize, oh man, our choices matter on how we move through this. This could have been so much easier for us if we had just gone right instead of left. Um, and then they start to be a little more careful about how they proceed through the dungeon. And I think that's a good way of establishing that there's more to the world. If you show that there's some ways that you could go that lead to certain outcomes that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, one of the bad things about this is that you end up designing a lot of a dungeon that maybe your players won't ever see,
0: but I think well, it's worth it. That's that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, one of the t- tricks that I've uh, shared with some other DMs is when a section of your dungeon doesn't get used or seen, either... That means that your dungeon is revisitable. Maybe you can populate it with something else. Or you can reuse that section of a dungeon if you know your players are never going to come back here again. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh
1: that I mean that is definitely a positive of it. Um one... I w- I would just one thing I would say about that is just if you're going to reuse things and that sort of stuff, I think it's very important that the dungeon you've created doesn't change while the players are in there i know there's sometimes that temptation of like oh man i put this really cool thing over in this room here but they're not going that way what if i just move that room over to this place instead and then sometimes it'll work but it it can make your own dungeon uh and your own running of the dungeon more complicated so just save that thing for another place
0: i would uh i would add a caveat Unless it is essential to the story. If it is essential to the story, use the quantum dragon.
1: The- yeah. I, I try to, in this one, uh, this dungeon that I created, if it was an important thing that I like really wanted them to have, I put it so that it ended up in like a bottleneck of the dungeon so that yeah. they kind of had to go through that room anyway. And then you don't have to worry about moving stuff around, but sometimes that's an oversight and hey, you got to move the thing.
0: Yeah. It would be best not to, but if you have to, you have to. Uh, The other thing, speaking of reusing, if you reuse a dungeon uh, with different enemies or for a different point in the campaign, make sure to keep it familiar. Don't, Don't change it unless the monsters that inhabited it would have changed it in that way. They may have reset traps or introduced new ones, and they may have taken treasure and moved it around to their own hiding spot if it was left behind. But they probably wouldn't have built a brand new stone room underground five stories down.
1: No, They, they may have dug some new tunnels to get to places, so maybe there's some new shortcuts you can be taking. But yeah, definitely not a whole new living area of a stone room
0: yeah or they may have even like collapsed some section accidentally or anything like that that kind of change makes sense yeah um Uh, one of the
1: other things i did to make uh or to keep my players more engaged with i run theater of the mind i never use uh battle maps or anything like that sometimes if it's really complicated i'll draw something out on a whiteboard just so we all have a basic idea of what's going on um but since I don't use maps in my game, I got my players to draw out their own map as they were going through the dungeon. So I would describe like there's a pathway on the eastern side of this room and so they would try and draw the map that I was describing to them so that they could find their way back through this dungeon. And they were very frustrated by it at first cuz my descriptions were lackluster to say the best or say the least at the beginning. But uh, after a while, it sort of turned into a really fun thing, and uh, we posted those on my on our podcast Instagram account, uh, which is we have Dark Vision on Instagram. So you can see like the difference between the map that I drew for myself and the map that they drew, and then you can show them that progress later, and they'll be. It's just an added fun thing to have your players do, and it sort of brings them into the whole
0: reality of the game as well. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of of designing dungeon crawls, um, this is a great question, I think. I need traps. What are some resources for good trap-making ideas? Uh, Honestly, I think
1: between the Dungeon Master's Guide and Xanathar's Guide to Everything, you have everything that you could possibly need to build any trap you could ever imagine. Uh I think every single trap is some variation of one of the traps in the Dungeon Master's Guide, anyway. But that being said, I was recently told about uh an old book, I think it was like uh made in the eighties at some point, called Grimtooth's Traps, and it's like fifty pages with like a hundred different traps in it, uh ranging from like room traps to corridor traps to like trapped doors and items, and it's fantastic fantastic uh and it's it's relatively easy to find i found it no problem uh so if you need more inspiration like that's a really good uh resource to see how the basic traps that you can find in the dungeon master's guide will be can be expanded upon and uh with just a few tweaks yeah or can make some really really cool things
0: and i i always think that the basic idea of a trap is going to be pretty consistent. It's up to you and you can obviously reuse ideas that you've seen other places or use them as inspiration but it is kind of up to you the dm to make them uh unique if you wanted to
1: yeah um and that sort of goes back to i think the first thing i said about building a dungeon is like what's the theme Mm -hmm. uh if you know what The theme is you can take any trap that exists and turn it, tweak it just a little bit, Uh, reuse traps, as we established. Yeah. Uh, So, like, you look at the fire-breathing statue stat in the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide, and, like, it's cool, it does what you want, but fire doesn't make sense. Well, so instead of it being a fire-breathing statue, maybe it emits... Uh, poisonous gas, and then instead of a dexterity throw to sa- uh, avoid the fire, it's a constitution-saving throw to see if you hold your breath or can resist the effects of the poison or whatever. But everything else about the trap stays the same. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a really great way to do it. And maybe, maybe you don't want it to be a statue. Maybe you want the gas to come out of the chandelier that's hanging in the foyer of the mansion you just broke into. Um, but all traps are basically those
0: basic traps with a few tweaks to them and make it also match the environment like i believe you said um make it match the theme one of the things that i've seen is traps that don't really belong in a goblin den somehow end up in a goblin den yeah you better have a good reason as to why it's there yeah otherwise
1: it really can break immersion
0: but there's a lot of fun things you can do with stuff that goblins might have made. Uh most humanoid player characters are not the same size as goblins. No. And so maybe the trap in and of itself could be easy to avoid, but the goblin shaman had the bright idea to put it in the one tunnel where you had to crouch where big creatures would have to crouch down and crawl on their hands and knees.
1: Yeah. It's super easy to avoid if you're three feet tall. Otherwise, man, you're going to have some trouble.
0: Yep. All right. So based on all of this, what is your favorite trap?
1: My absolute favorite trap, and I just used it in my campaign, and I had so much fun designing it and thinking about how it was going to be implemented, and then watching my players solve it was it was it was great. Um, and it's just a regular pit trap. To That's what it looks like. It's uh, a pit trap that looks to be narrow enough to be jumpable. But there's an invisible floor and an invisible wall. So if you try to jump <laughs> the pit, you hit an invisible wall on the far side of the pit and fall into it. Uh, the way to get across the pit is to gently step over it carefully walking across the invisible floor but if you try to run or you stomp around or anything like that the floor gives way and you fall into the pit uh it's kind of like a little bit of i don't know like a looney tunes thing where like wily coyote runs off the cliff but doesn't fall until he looks down it's kind of like that you just kind of gotta work your way slowly across this floor and if you do it hey man you just solved the trap it was the easiest thing in the world to solve but I know my players get stumped by pits constantly like if I want to slow something down I just have to put a (laughs) hole in the floor in front of them and then we spend the next 40 minutes with that hole Um, unfortunately this time as a joke one of my players was like oh there's a pit all right I walk across it and I was like oh well oh okay it works. That works. <laughs> and they're like, what? But they're so, <laughs> they're so confused. And they're still talking about like, I don't understand how he got past that. And I was like, yeah, I can't explain it to you. But uh, you did it. So congratulations. Yep. And then they came across another pit later on. That was the same thing. But they screwed it up. And they tried to jump across it and run across it. And they fell into the pit. And I was like, guys, you like an hour ago, you just dealt with one. Okay, whatever. So it. <laughs> It's fun because it's like so simple to look at that your players just think that they know how to solve it immediately, and then they kind of don't. And I think those are the best types of traps, but that's definitely my favorite
0: one that I've ever run. Uh, So my favorite trap is also one that was, all right, you look at it, you think you know exactly how to solve it. It wasn't necessarily a trap itself, but it had trap components. It was a sure. hidden door, and okay. on this door... Uh, It is a bookshelf door. So there's only five items on this bookshelf. There is a large marble bust and two books to either side. Sure. Uh, It is in a small library room. And when they walked in, a plate depressed and closed the door behind them. As doors do. Yep. And so... They did everything they could to try and figure out this has to be a door, this has to be the way out, it's got to be something with this bust. So they, they spent 30 minutes or so picking up, moving, adjusting, throwing around, attempting to break this bust. They broke it because it was just a marble bust. Awesome. The trap component of it was the trapped books that were the next most obvious thing that they would check. I gave each of these books a real name from a real-world novel, but uh, they were what I called a literal trap. So whatever was on the title was what happened. So we had a Nickel novel. They pick it up, and it turns to Nickel. I love it. Uh, say nothing. Whoever picks it up, if they failed their save, could only say nothing.
1: Even better. That's (coughs) fantastic.
0: Educated, a memoir. Imparted visions of how to open the door. And, uh, Uh, I forget the other one.
1: That, whatever it was, I'm sure it's great,
0: because all of those. Oh, it was, it was Little Fires. Those are fantastic. It was Little Fires Everywhere. Uh, (laughs) Ah. (laughs) <laughs> and you pick it up, and little fires start all over the library.
1: I <laughs> I love that. Um, I'm going to try and implement
0: something like that. That's so good. And, of course, the way to open the door was to turn around and look at the door that had closed. There was a button.
1: That's so good. That's so simple.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: I, uh... I I love things like that. I had a a trap that was, and the very first campaign I run that was sort of like that. They were trying to figure out where all these puzzle pieces went, but then they turned around and realized that one of the puzzle pieces wasn't actually a puzzle piece. It was just a part of the podium that fell off when the trap shut. So they put that piece back. (laughs) And they're like, oh, this whole puzzle didn't matter? And I was like, no, not even a little bit and it's, just, <laughs> it's so good so they spent so long trying to figure out this poem and and all this stuff and all they had to do was put the podium back together and it's and then that would have solved all of their
0: frustrations it it is very fun to include the simplistic answer readily available because especially if you've got a group that you know will overthink things
1: oh yeah Take advantage of that overthinking. It's so much fun to watch them struggle. But mm-hmm. like in a fun way, not in a malicious way.
0: And and always give them hints if need be. Uh, yeah. Make sure that they're not totally floundering or totally stumped. It's not fun to sit there completely unable to solve it and unable to progress.
1: And also, I think one of the other things as a little backup is sometimes you might realize that They're never going to solve this puzzle or this trap the way that you thought it was going to be solved. But if they have a really good idea and it makes sense, maybe that's what ends up
0: solving this puzzle instead. Uh, The group actually didn't even press the button. They ended up finding one of the other failsafe switches and pressing it. It was a long uh, hole in the stone wall to another button. And they, they opened the door that way. So they didn't even take the simple solution.
1: <laughs> but it was there for them if they wanted it. Uh, that's great. I love it.
0: Uh, all right. Well, with that, I think that we're going to wrap up here. So thank you so much for joining me today, Kyle.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This was this was great. I really enjoyed this.
0: Yeah. Uh, for those of you listening, definitely check out We Have Dark Vision. I'll put links in the description. And thank you. Uh, this has been Running the Table with my guest today, Kyle Andrews, Dungeon Master for the podcast We Have Dark Vision. Please follow all those links, like I said. Check out, support, give a listen. And as always, if you find yourself with questions that you want answered about anything tabletop role-playing game related, please send them to rttpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me at Running the Table on both Twitter and Facebook.